Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. It's Monday and it's the start of another week of Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast with a new show every single day of the season. Last night, Liverpool stopped the rot. The Reds' worst run for 18 years was put to an end with a 2-0 victory over basement boys Sheffield United at Bramall Lane. But with Jordan Henderson, the latest name, scribbled onto Jurgen Klopp's lengthy bill of health, are threadbare Liverpool strong enough to finish in the top four? We'll take a look at last night's top flight action, as well as tonight's affair over the blue side of Stanley Park, as Everton welcome a struggling Southampton to Goodison Park this evening. Plus, we pick our heroes and villains from the weekend's action. Are the referees becoming the bad guys in the Premier League at the moment after more divisive decision-making this weekend? Brighton's Lewis Dunk and Manchester United's Luke Shaw seem to think so in their provocative post-match interviews. I'm Niall McCorn and today's podcast pundits, we've got the happy hammer, Jim Salverson. Hello, Jim. <laughs> Hello, Niall. And we've also got the stern scouser, Steve McNaughton. All right, Steve. <laughs> hey, boys. Right, now it's not just uh, Monday, it's also the beginning of March, which means the run-in is almost upon us. Around 12 games to go the Premier League season and still all to play for. We'll get into the guts of the show in a sec. But first, a review. We always like to do a podcast review <laughs> on a Monday. Uh, thanks very much. This five-star review uh, comes in all the way from Australia. Dimas underscore Toonami via Apple Podcasts. They say, as a listener from Australia who used to live in London, it keeps me right up to date with all the ins and outs of the Premier League. Feels like I'm back riding the tube reading the Metro. Good times keep up the good work lads oh, cheers it's a geographical mess that though isn't it uh, Geordie who used to live in London and now lives in Australia I feel really sorry for any Australian friends or workmates trying to understand a Geordie accent as well that, <laughs> that must be an absolute nightmare well he's managed to figure out the tube which is more than quite a lot of the population in this yeah. country have been able to do so fair play um, if you want to leave us a review you can do um, that was a five star review by the way so thanks very much for that one uh, you can leave us a review as well please leave a five star review uh, just go to your podcast provider uh, and leave us a nice little review you might even get a shout out on the show 
as well. So thanks very much. Keep those reviews coming in. But it's time to talk Premier League football now. And we'll start with last night's fixture, uh, the evening kickoff between Sheffield United and Liverpool. You might have caught Fergal Brennan and the gang on yesterday's Football Social Daily review show. This game kicked off just as the podcast was being recorded, so they didn't manage to cover that one off. But all the other games are available, so just scroll back in the timeline and you'll be able to find that show with Fergal and the gang. Sheffield United nil, Liverpool 2 was the final score at Bramall Lane. I guess, Steve, the most important thing for Liverpool was to stop the rot because you were on your worst losing run since December 2002, 18 years and five losses in a row. If you had lost to Sheffield United, it would have been the first time that had happened since the 1950s. So perhaps a, a nice deep sigh of relief for you as a Liverpool fan after yesterday. Of course, you know, it's always good to get a get a win. And I think, you know, we were due that last night. We were due to win because some of the games that we've lost, I feel that we've been quite unfortunate in. Um, it, I mean, the biggest thing for Liverpool at the minute is the shivers that we get down our spine when we see the team being released. Um, and last night was no different when we kind of all had our heads and our hands at, uh, you know, a couple of selections in the team. And I just think, you know, Sheffield United um, is usually quite a difficult place to go to. They're fighting for their lives. Admittedly, Chris Wilder, you know, conceded that they're probably going to be relegated last night. But I just think that Liverpool were comfortable. I thought, you know, they were very rarely threatened. Um, I thought it could have been more. I mean, a, a big problem for Liverpool at the minute is they're so wasteful in front of the goal. It's it's untrue. And um, I, I seen the, the Arsenal-Leicester game yesterday and it was a good result for Arsenal at Leicester. But I thought we did the same. We played really well and um, come off with a 3-1 defeat after a couple of goalkeeping errors. Um, we just, we've got to sort that out. Liverpool have to sort that out. Injuries aside and the fact that, you know, there's no centre-backs, there's no midfielders... Um, They've got to sort out the form in front of the goal because they are so wasteful, it's untrue. But a, a, a sigh of relief more than euphoria last night. Certainly Liverpool have had so many injuries, Jim. And again, Jordan Henderson, as we just mentioned, the latest name to be added to that long injury list. Fabinho was out as well, not to mention the two centre-halves. Alisson missing due to the fact his father sadly passed away earlier this week. So, you know, they are threadbare, Liverpool. And Jurgen Klopp has to call upon some of those players he doesn't normally call upon. Uh, and as Steve says, that can kind, kind of give jitters to some of those Liverpool fans. So how do you think they did cope? They coped very well in the game against Sheffield United, but that's exactly what they should have done given the statuses of those two clubs because Sheffield United are really struggling at the moment and Liverpool, yeah, they have got injuries, but I'm kind of getting a little bit bored of this narrative from some Liverpool fans, Steve, of (laughs) cap in hand, oh, we've got so many injuries. I mean, you look at the... If you want to just take the midfield from last night's game, let's just look at the midfield. Let's not worry about the centre-back issues for the times being. But they had Thiago, Wijnaldum and Curtis Jones all on the field last night, all in that starting eleven, and all incredibly good, talented midfielders. Thiago maybe not quite fitting into the Liverpool setup yet, but undoubtedly a talented midfielder. And then you look at the bench and you've got Oxlade-Chamberlain, Shakiri, Keita, all sitting on the bench as well. It's not like there's a lack of talent or a lack of squad members in that team and you consider where how Liverpool have been performing recently and where they are on the league even with the team they have even with the injuries they've got they should be doing better than they are so I, I get that maybe they haven't got the squad that will compete against Manchester City for the Premier Nobody League else. at the moment <laughs> well no exactly it's an, it's an impossible task but you look at that starting 11 last night that is a good starting 11 and mm. it's better than say for example West Ham's starting 11 
who at nah, the moment are three places above Liverpool in the league. So I think they just need to stop whinging and get on with it to a certain extent. Come on then, Steve, your right of reply. Your right of reply to Jim there, who says that Liverpool need to stop whinging and get on with it. Um, what do you think? Well, I think he's dramatically wider the mark, of course. And <laughs> I know, but I think that... Um... The, 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 there's a bigger thing at play with Liverpool. Yes, the injuries and, and the three lads that were in midfield last night. If everyone's fit, unfortunately, Curtis Jones doesn't start. Um, he's still kind of 20 years of age. But the pro- the problems run much deeper than that. The way that Liverpool play football, um, when, you're ha- when you take the midfield out of it and you haven't got your regular centre-backs, I mean, that was Liverpool's 19th centre-back partnership of the season last night. There's just no way you can challenge when you're chopping and changing as much as that. And I just think that it, the whole machine has broke down, the system that Liverpool use, and it's not just about the players going on the pitch and playing, it's about the system working. Liverpool's midfield... Well, isn't it then Jurgen Klopp's job to adapt his system to the players he has available? This is what this is one of the things that winds me up about football manager management, and we get it with Marcelo Bielsa all the time, it's like, oh, he plays a certain way, and he's not going to divert from that way of playing. Surely a football manager's job... If he is for, in an ideal world, yeah, play your football. Like Man City are always going to play possession football. Um, Liverpool are always going to want to play that pressing football. But surely your job when you can't do that, when that isn't within your armoury, then you have to change it to get the results. You would think so. I think you know there's got to be a plan B. And I think that, and I've said it on the podcast before, the frustration has been that sometimes we have lacked that plan B. Certainly when... We've run into that deep block. I mean, Sheffield United had five at the back last night. They played three centre backs and and the two full backs, which I think first and foremost for the team that needs to get wins is it was quite negative. It was almost kind of like you know whimpering before before we kicked off. But Liverpool have a problem getting past teams like that. You know, your Newcastle's this season, Brighton's. Um, uh, Burnley beat them at Anfield of course um, Southampton beat them because they can't get past that deep block so Liverpool unfortunately don't seem to have that plan B that you refer to and mm. it is really really frustrating it is kind of very much um, you know get it up to the front three they'll make something happen and we'll we'll be fine um, and given the the changing and, and the injuries and I mean Diogo Jota last night, you know, was supposed to come back after three months out. Appendicitis, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's it's unbelievable. But yeah, I think that, um, yes, you know, you look at the Liverpool bench that you mentioned last night, you know, have you seen Jordan Shaqiri play football? Um, <laughs> I think, you know, Oxlade-Chamberlain, unfortunately, he's probably on his last legs at Liverpool. Um, I think, yes, he's had, you know, a lot of serious injuries and, and that is really unfortunate. But he's fit. And, and he's just nowhere near. Um, you know, he, he isn't doing enough at the minute. And I think Naby Keita was, you know, it was his first involvement after a few months out as well. Um, so that's probably why he didn't start last night. But I think, yeah, I get it. Liverpool do have names they can put on the bench. But Liverpool are very much a system. They put, you know, the football is based on a system. And if you haven't got the personnel that go, can go into that system, uh, which they haven't at the minute. I mean, the young defenders did all right last night. You know, um, Ozan Kabak is very raw, as we know. You know, he's picking up a book in every game. But he's 20 years of age and he's come out for Schalke team that was getting leathered every week. And... Um, you know, Nat Phillips is, is you know, obviously he's been out on loan. He's done a, a stint in the Bundesliga. I think, you know, they lack pace as well. You know, it's very clear that they, they haven't got a bit of pace about them at the back. And that. so there is all kind of mitigating circumstances. But, you know, to, to be absolutely fair, you would expect Liverpool to get a result against, you know, bottom of the league, Sheffield United last night. 
He is very rigid, isn't he, Jurgen Klopp, with that yeah. 4-3-3. Um, yeah. He doesn't like to move from it at all, which is very interesting because, as you say, they don't probably have the right personnel at the moment to play that um, full tilt, but still something that Liverpool have to deal with. They got the result in the end last night, Jim. The second, uh, the first goal sorry, was scored by Curtis Jones. As Steve's already said, he's only 20. And actually, I think even though... I agree with Steve, and he's probably not one of the first choice midfielders for Liverpool's starting eleven when everyone's fit. He's becoming more and more impressive each week. He's been integrated into the team really well. Do you think he should be knocking on the door of the England setup before long? And when I say before long, I mean probably not for the Euros, but in the next year or two, if he can keep playing for Liverpool and forcing the issue in in that starting eleven, then he's surely in with a chance. He's a really impressive player and like you say, he's growing in confidence and stature as the season goes on. I remember him coming on at the tail end of West Ham's game against Liverpool earlier on in the season and he changed the game. Ultimately, he won that for Liverpool. So I've been really impressed with him this season. He is only 20, you're right, but there's a lot of midfielders that are skirting around the England setup at the moment that are that kind of age that I'd probably say are ahead of them at the moment. Like, I know Madison's a little bit older but Madison's kind of on the outskirts uh, Saka's on the outskirts of that kind of those kind of options uh, Calvin Phillips maybe he's had the odd go Phil Foden we don't even know whether he's going to be a England regular when it comes to the Euros so I think he's a little bit off where those players are at the moment but mm. whether he can get there or not I mean ultimately and we find this with a lot of the young players, particularly when they're playing for your Liverpools and your Man Cities, is they show that real level of promise. But the question is whether they can get the game time to then kick on and develop. And at the age of 20, I mean, we know how young we expect our footballers to mature now. We expect them to be first team regulars by the time they get to 18, 19, 20 now. And he's not there yet. So he needs that game time in order to mature. But he certainly showed enough glimpses of potential to be in the sh- in with a shout of being a first team England regular in the in the future but as I say I mean England it's one of the areas that as a national team we're really blessed at the moment there's a lot of young English talent mm. in that midfield do you think that opportunity might open up for Curtis Jones sooner rather than later Steve because as you say it looks like Jordan Shakiri might not be at the club for too much longer you say that Oxo Chamberlain might also be on the way out and Naby Keita seems to be injured every five minutes so you know he's going to be getting these opportunities isn't he at least yeah, you know, he's he's I think over the last um, you know, kind of twelve, fifteen months he's played twenty seven times for Liverpool, something like that. Um, you know, he's got five goals in that in that period as well across the Champions League and domestic competitions in the Premier League. So, you know, he will get his opportunity and I think that I think I mean Liverpool obviously, you know, I've talked about the injuries and stuff like that, and they're not the only team. Leicester have, have, have got quite a lot of injuries at the minute as well. Um but I just think that you know he he will get his opportunity because the schedule in this country certainly this season has been ridiculous quite frankly um and this is what's contributing to a lot of players from all our teams picking up these muscular injuries that are keeping them out for four weeks and stuff like that and i think you know he will get opportunities and i think the the thing that liverpool need to have which they haven't got which which man city have in abundance and i say man city because Obviously, we're probably Man City. When we've got a fully fit squad, we're probably Man City's closest rivals, if we're going to be honest about it. Um, I just think the problem with Liverpool is that they don't have the personnel to rotate effectively. And I think that Curtis does give them that option to do that. Where if they have got a, I don't know, you know, they're playing Southampton away in you know, midweek in the Premier League, or uh, but they've got, you know, 
Atletico Madrid coming up in the Champions League in the knockout stage. You, you could put Curtis in there. But I think, you know, he, Liverpool are, you know, they're, they're really pleased with him and his development and how he's come on because he broke onto the scene when he scored that goal, didn't he, against Everton in the FA Cup when, you know, when he played the kids. Um, and I just think that he's got loads of time and he's on his hands. I, I, I agree with Jim, um, which is something of a rarity. Um, <laughs> that, I think I think this summer I think this summer's Euros are, are a bit too soon for him. Um, and I think he may end up going just for the experience of it. You know, Gareth Southgate might go. You know, bring him along. You know, it's a bit of a wild card or something like that. That's not beyond the realms of possibility. But but like you said, if Henderson's fit and then the likes of Grealish, Madison, Mason Mount, you know, Kosaku, people like that, he, he is down that list. But I think Qatar, you know, the World Cup in Qatar could be a good target for him. Steve and Jim agreeing on a Monday morning. There's a collector's item for you, uh, Football yeah. Social Daily <laughs> listeners. Um, just another thing, I don't want to get too sidetracked, Jim, but I've seen a lot of debate on social media this week, particularly this weekend, actually, about the value of players on a team's bench. For instance, people were saying, oh, how are we expected to compete with Man City when they've got 350 million quids worth of talent on the bench? How are we supposed to compete with Chelsea when they've got 370 million quids worth of talent on the bench? Just because they've got a bench worth a certain value doesn't mean those players are any good. Do you think that we get hung up too much on how much players cost rather than how good they actually are? I think the whole thing's boring. I think I think you're kind of, yeah, I agree with you, but I think it's more than that. I don't like the constant debate about how much a team has spent and whether they've been bankrolled and the wages that clubs are spending and all that kind of thing. Because ultimately, you've made your own bed. You've picked the team that you want to support. And whether it's a Manchester City or whether it's a Sheffield United, that's the lot you've been handed. So you're just kind of going to suck it up and get on with it. And it, it just reeks of sour grapes to me when people are complaining about the amount of money that has been spent or the amount of money that is on a bench in this particular case. And you're right, it's not necessarily about the price tag that a player has put upon them. It's about what they contribute. So just because you've got a Paul Pogba, for example, that's cost you £89 million sitting on your bench doesn't mean you've got someone who's going to contribute £89 million worth of ability or worth of football to your team. So yeah, it's a little bit of a nonsense. Player transfer values doesn't always translate completely into their ability or what they're offering at any given time. So it's a weird thing to get obsessed with, but I think it's just part of a football Twitter, isn't it? It's just part of the where we are at the moment. In that case, then, I'm expecting no complaints when West Ham signed James MacArthur from Crystal Palace for 50 million quid this summer because it's <laughs> inevitably going to happen now, Jim, that you've said that. Do you not think, though, lads, that um, the Premier League is a bit in danger of becoming like the Scottish League or the Bundesliga? In what sense? In the fact that the people with the most money are just going to win everything. But I think we've been here before, Steve. I think it's just, it goes round and round again and we assume this is going to be something that sticks around forever and we saw it in the 90s with... Manchester United Blackburn. and Blackburn yeah and these teams yeah. that have this dominance and seem to have this endless pot of money something happens and it just changes and it just churns so it feels at the moment that Manchester City are setting up this dynasty that's going to make them a superpower in football for the next 20 years but it won't happen mm. look at look at Barcelona at the moment in La Liga they're crumbling at the moment and once their financial issues really hit and once Lionel Messi leaves that football club they're going to be in a mess and they will sink down that league they will no longer be a superpower so something happens that changes the scenarios and churns yeah. over who becomes the dominant force in football so yeah I see what you're saying but 
it's just part of the game. It's just where we are. And I don't mm. see what you could do to stop it. Well, on that then, let's take a look at the other end of the table because Chris Wilde has said after the game that Sheffield United simply don't have the resources to compete against sides like Liverpool. What do you make of that, Steve? Is that just him being factual? Because I think he does have a point. You can't expect Sheffield United to really take it to Liverpool and, and win the game, particularly with the form they're in. Or is that maybe him subconsciously hinting at the boardroom to give him a bit more of a chance when it comes to opening the checkbook and signing some players? Because they have spent a bit of money, Sheffield United. They signed Sander Berger last season. They signed Rian Brewster from Liverpool in the summer for decent money as well. So what do you make of that uh, comment from Chris Wilder there? I thought it was quite funny. Um, I mean, I don't, what I don't think is funny is Sander Berg being you know, badly injured. He's been out for four months nearly, hasn't he? And, you know, and, and I think he is a, potentially a special player. Um, I don't think he'll stay at Sheffield United because I believe he's got a relegation clause in his contract that says he's, he's free to seek a move to another club. Um, Ryan Brewster, it was a lot of money for someone that was, was un, unproven in the Premier League. But what's quite interesting about what Chris said um, is that, you know, Sheffield United... Are, uh, a 12th in the table of net spend since 2016. They've spent 116 million quid, um, you know, after t- transfers out and, and, and money coming in and whatnot. Um, the 13th place team is Liverpool. So they actually have a higher net spend than Liverpool over the last five seasons. Um, so him saying that he doesn't have the resources and that he can't compete, I just don't buy that. I think Sheffield. I think the Sheffield United have really backed Chris Wilder in the transfer market. I think they've allowed him to make some really big signings for that club. I mean, the two players we've mentioned, Berg and, and Brewster, and not let's not forget he played. Um, he paid big money for Lice Mousset as well, and he paid big money for Ollie McBurney. So Chris Wilder Ramsdale been as well cost a decent amount of money, didn't he? He was like ten million. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. He, was, he and, made um, some really good saves, by the way, yesterday. I don't want to slag him off yeah. too much. Yeah, great but game, I don't yeah. think he's one of the best keepers in the division. He was due a good game, wasn't he? <laughs> but I just think that, um, yeah, so Chris, Chris on that basis, you know, because Jim's obviously added, added Ramsdale to the mix there. Um, the guy spent some serious cash, you know, while he's been at Sheffield United. And he's not the only one because Brighton are, are well up there. Wolves are well up there in, t- in terms of their spending as well. But to come out and say that he can't compete with other teams and specifically Liverpool... Um, I, I think it's a bit embarrassing that you know to say that. I mean, let's. There's, there's no doubt about it. The, the two clubs, there's a gulf in size in the clubs. Um, you know, there's no doubt about that. But Liverpool is very, very frugal, uh, as we've discussed at length on the podcast before. And I just think that was um, it was a bit embarrassing to say that last night. Just finally, then, in a couple of words, if you can, from what you saw last night, Steve, are you confident that Liverpool will finish in the top four this season? <sighs> I, I don't know. In all honesty, I think that it depends if 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 any more you know we pick up any more injuries to key personnel. Um, it, it's a different one every week at the minute. So I think if we can get some lads back, I mean they're talking about you know uh, Diogo Jota um, being back on Thursday night. I tell you what, how good's that? Appendicitis on a Sunday, but you'll probably play on a Thursday night. That is amazing, isn't it? Um, you know Fabinho should be back on on Thursday. I think Naby Keita will probably start against Chelsea on Thursday. Um, so I think if we can get some of these key lads back, I mean, obviously Henderson's probably out for the season, uh, Virgil, Gomez, um, you know, they're not going to be coming back. So I think if we can get, you know, some of these these key personnel back, I think we can probably put a bit of a run together and then we've just got to dust ourselves down and go again next season with a, with a few brand new additions. What about you then, Jim? Your team West Ham, um, are they taking that? 
top four spot from Liverpool. Do you reckon the Reds can uh, make a good charge between now and the end of the season? I still think West Ham will drop out of that top four. I think Liverpool... I mean, the challenge for Liverpool isn't just West Ham dropping out because, I mean, we've got a tough run of games up and I think in kind of five, six games time, it's going to look very different for West Ham. I think eighth is probably a very realistic target for us this season. But they still need another to drop out of that top four if Liverpool are going to take that place or drop below them as well. Chelsea aren't losing games at the moment. They seem to be really solid and Tuchel's having some impact on the way they're playing. So I fancy them to get top four, which leaves Leicester City to drop out. And we know what Leicester City have done this season and what they've done in previous seasons. They're certainly capable of finish top four. The problem with Brendan Rodgers is he's got some horrific injury problems at the moment as well. So whether the Leicester City team can maintain their current form is a big question mark. So I think Liverpool will creep into that top four, but it's going to require Leicester City to drop out, West Ham to drop out. And I think it will be City, United, Chelsea, Liverpool in the Champions League spots. I agree. Sheffield United nil, Liverpool 2, final score in the Premier League last night. Liverpool now 6th in the top flight standings, 43 points, 2 off the top 4. Meanwhile, Sheffield United on 11 points, still rock bottom of the table and trying to get off 11 points because, of course, if they stay on 11 and don't get any more between now and the end of the season, that puts them level with Derby County's worst points haul ever in a Premier League season. So I think even though everyone's kind of consigned Sheffield United to relegation, probably playing for pride to try and get at least one more point to avoid an unwanted record. We'll be talking heroes and villains next on Football Social Daily. We'll do it after this. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Football Social Daily from Sports Social, the daily Premier League podcast with a new show every single day of the season. So why not hit subscribe and that way you won't ever miss another episode of the show again. It's a Monday and often on a Monday we like to do our heroes and villains from the weekend's action where each of our pundits will pick one hero and one villain uh, and discuss why they fit that specific criteria. We'll start with you, Jim, and we'll start with heroes. Who's your hero for the weekend? I'm going to go with maybe a slightly surprising choice, Glenn Roder, who was manager of my club, West Ham, for a bit. And I'll be honest with you, far from loved when he was West Ham manager, despite the fact he took us to a seventh place finish, which is one of our higher finishes in certainly my memory. He was never massively popular with the fans. He didn't really seem to fit the club properly, but I think it's a real measure of the man some of the reactions that have come out to his passing at the weekend. He passed away because of a struggle with a brain tumour, which caused him to take time out from football when he was West Ham manager as well. But he was clearly a very studious man man and manager. He was very well thought of amongst all the people that he worked with and much loved by the people he worked with as well. So I think that says a lot about him as an individual. And he was an undisputed undeniably a very talented coach as well I'm not entirely sure that ability as a coach necessarily translated into his ability as a manager but clearly a great loss to football so yeah I think Glenn Roder deserves to be a hero today on the podcast absolutely fought a long battle as well didn't he with that brain tumor and to Mm. pass away at 65 it is very sad and no age at all so I agree with that Jim rest in peace Glenn Roder what about you Steve who are you going for for your hero for the weekend 
Uh, well, it's a slightly different hero. I just think that Jim wonderfully summed that up and, you know, rest in peace, Glenn Roder. But my hero, just coming back to the Premier League matches this weekend, is Gareth Bale. Um, Mm. I've been, uh, as you know, Niall, we've been on a few podcasts where I've been, you know, saying that he's a world-class player. Um, You know, world-class players, you know, don't suddenly become rubbish. Um, And he is now starting to show that after getting some minutes on the pitch is what we asked for a few Mm. weeks back. We said the lad needs minutes. He's a confidence player. You make him feel important. Special things happen. He was outstanding yesterday in that game. I mean, you know, Burnley were an absolute shambles defensively. There's no doubt about that. But he was proper on it yesterday that was like the Gareth Bale of old and the two goals that he scored were were absolutely sublime and I think that the pass to Harry Kane for his goal was just sensational and and the celebrations as well you know where he's doing the, t- the two fingers thing not the swearing uh, to, our, <laughs> to our young listeners um, but he was doing the kind of two, fi- two fingered uh, celebration with you know with, with Son and Luca Mora embarrassedly tried to do it but couldn't somehow manage. Um, he's got he's, he's playing he's playing with a smile on his face. Um, I mean mm. I had to dock him points for wearing gloves because it was quite a nice day yesterday and I thought the gloves were a bit extra. Um, but I think that yeah, fair play to him. Great game yesterday. Good to see him back. Um, thankfully we played them twice already this season. Um, so we're all right. But I think that yeah, welcome back. Mr. Gareth Bale. I think Steve's right though. Gareth Bale's playing football like he's enjoying it at the moment. I think that's really important to the way he plays. And he got a lot of criticism at Real Madrid for not taking the game seriously enough. And we saw him messing around on the bench and in the stands and all that kind of thing. I think it's just the character he is. I think he's just a bloke who likes to have fun and that needs to translate into his game as well. So the fact he is looking like he's having fun for Spurs at the moment, I think they might finally start getting a tune out of him. Having fun in a Jose Mourinho team. Not sure how <laughs> no, unheard of. Absolutely. Um, what about villains then? Moving on to villains. Go on, Jim. There must be a few to pick from this weekend because there's been a fair amount of incidents. I'm going to pick Ole Gunnar Solskjaer this weekend. Ooh. In another weekend where we potentially could be brandishing the refs as villains, I think his comments about Manchester United's lack of penalties be, uh, being because referees have been swayed by outside influences. Embarrassing. It's just, yeah, it's just sour grapes, isn't it? It smacks of sore losing. And I don't like the idea that professional referees can be swayed in some way by what people are saying. I don't think it's the case. I think the referees are more professional than that. And let's face it, Ole, if you're relying on penalties to beat teams and you probably need to do a little bit more in the coaching department, get your players playing a little bit better on the pitch because you shouldn't be relying on penalties to win games anyway. And I think it's quite telling that I, I don't I can't remember the last time that Manchester United beat another top six team, but they seem to grind out a lot of draws against top six teams. That's penalties or no penalties. So I think one goal, Jim, this season against the against top, top six. Big See, six. Rid- was it a penalty? Uh, no, it was the. It might have been actually. It was when Tottenham beat him six one at Old Trafford. That's the only goal he scored against the big, big six this season. Which isn't good enough. So I think Solskjaer's doing the old mind games trick. He learnt off Alex Ferguson both in causing 
referees to question themselves again and also deflecting attention away from the fact they have been hopeless against top six. For a team that have aspirations for Champions League football, you need to do better in terms of results than that. So Solskjaer is my villain. We'll come on to referees from this weekend's action in a little bit because there is plenty of controversy to do with that. Come on, Steve, let's have your villain. Well, uh, Matt, it was it was close this weekend. I could have said Bruno Fernandes for, for being completely invisible again in a big game, um, but I, I'm not going to do that. My my villain this weekend is Roy Keane. Um, so I, obviously, a lot of us would have seen him on TV yesterday. Um, he got into a bit of a set two with with Jamie Redknapp about about Tottenham's team. Um, I just thought Roy come ac- come across as a complete n- uh, with, with how he was talking yesterday. I think that. For me, the joke has worn quite thin now. Um, you know, I think yes, he was controversial and he was having digs at people and he was saying things. And I, but yesterday, I left a bad taste. I just thought, you know, grow up. Um, you know, when he was talking about the Tottenham team and he was talking about kind of like, if you can trap a football, you're going to get an international cap. You know, getting international caps doesn't mean you're a good player and all that. It's just absolute nonsense from him. And I, it got to the point with it yesterday where I thought, I am tired of you, you absolute. interesting well certainly there was plenty of debate not just in the sky sports studio yesterday but also in front of the sky sports cameras right throughout the weekend now we mentioned that referees could be construed as villains lately they've been certainly getting a lot of stick not just from the press but from the players too managers aren't normally allowed to comment on decisions made by referees at least not to their quality of referee in the game but we have seen that Jim, you mentioned it just a moment ago with your villain, who's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. We've also seen players come out, and we'll come on to what Lewis Dunk and Luke Shaw have both said this weekend in a second. Do you think that it's just born out of frustration that we've got VAR and we've kind of had this seed planted in our mind that VAR is there to make the correct decision? And yet we're still seeing incorrect decisions. Now, I personally felt Manchester United should have had a penalty for handball yesterday against Callum Hudson-Odoi. I can understand why Manchester United were annoyed. Yes, they probably didn't do enough to win the game, which is an equally fair assessment. But certainly, can you see why people are starting to lose their rag now with referees, as particularly in post-match interviews, almost immediately after the full-time whistle, where emotions are still running high? Yeah, completely. And it's incredibly frustrating when you're a fan watching these games and seeing decisions that this technology was brought in to resolve just being exacerbated and just made 10 times worse. So I completely understand the frustration. I don't understand the rule, to be honest with you, in the first place. I don't understand why managers and players can't comment on refereeing decisions. It makes no sense because everyone else can. We see it on social media. I don't think it adds... I mean, it's just part of the conversation around the game, isn't it? So I, I, I half understand the bringing the game into disrepute, disrepute or questioning the integrity of an official, that kind of thing. But I'm, I'm kind of past that. I think I want to hear from the managers. I think they should be able to make comments on the performance of the referee because the referees are there... In the middle, I think it's ridiculous that they don't come out themselves and talk Mm. about their own performances. So I don't see why they couldn't be analysed by the managers and the playing staff as much as they can be pundits and Twitter trolls or whatever it is. Well, it's funny you say that because Brighton's Lewis Dunk was making the exact same point in his post-match press interview after his quick free kick was allowed by the referee, then disallowed by the referee. Mm. He wasn't a happy man. Let's have a listen to what he said. It's embarrassing. It's a horrendous decision. I said to the ref, can I take it? He blew his whistle, I took it. 
just because you've got so much pressure from the bench and the players, he can't. He just allows to go. VR don't know what he said. It's a horrendous decision. Why don't he come speak to the press like me? Why don't he come and say his point? Never. They hide behind their bubble. It's fine, isn't it? I don't think he knew what he was doing. He said, I said to him, can I take the free kick? He said, yes, blew the whistle, I took it. He went in the back of the net. He'd give the goal, why did he give the goal? Because he, he, he knew he said go. So I don't know how VAR was getting involved because he said the words. You can look on the, on the video if you want. Just how taken aback were you as a group when, of course, first of all, he's disallowed the goal, then after some debate with both teams, both players from both sides, then he gives the goal, right. then he changes his mind again. Had in your mind, had he lost control of the game at that moment? I think you answered it there, didn't you? Yeah, he did. Fact. Well, there we go. That was Lewis Stunk after his free kick goal was disallowed and Brighton in the end didn't get the victory they so desperately needed. Steve, we've spoken about this on the podcast before about whether referees should come and front up to the media. The more and more this kind of debacle goes on about VAR getting decisions wrong, the more and more I think the players begin to have a point, don't they? Oh, uh, it's, it's so messy, isn't it? I think that... I think sometimes I think that the referees coming and speaking to Sky Sports or BT after the game would be good to talk through some of that that has happened. And then part of me thinks if they get someone like Jeff Shreves getting into the under their skin and and trying to trip them up and stuff like that, I think that's also a recipe for disaster. So I think mm. that it could probably make it worse if they actually come out and spoke after the game. But I think yeah, it's it's so messy this because. I think what's happening is they they're just not sure what to do anymore, um, and I've had this discussion about a lot of other things, and that when you take the human element out of things, when you take that that natural decision making, whether it be right or wrong, out of the equation, and you put, bring everything into the mercy of technology, I just think that that it's just it's just not going to work but on the goal and what Lewis Dunk was talking about um, it was farcical um, you know the referee's blue he's took the free kick quick he's caught everyone off guard um, no problem goal as far as I'm concerned um, the going over to VAR and then chalking it off and, and, and whatnot and all that kind of followed after it um, I mean it was an entertaining game anyway because Brighton obviously missed two penalties as well but um, mm. and the second one that Danny Welbeck missed, I thought, oh, the referee's given one there, you know, over the uh, over the nonsense with the free kick. Um, but I just think that, um, yeah, it, it's a sad state of affairs. And I, I, I wouldn't say I felt sorry for Lee Mason, but I think he was victim of circumstance. Um, and the, the, all the bizarre things that are going on around rules... VAR, the people using VAR, the communication around it, the you know the the, the objectives and and directives changing halfway through the season, it is just a mess. And unfortunately, you know he he's found himself right mm. in the, the 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 almost like the whirlpool of of that mess, hasn't mm. he? And it was Saturday was an incident, um, and all the chopping and changing around the goal um, was. It was like the build-up of something that's been brewing for a while, that, and I think that unfortunately, you know, Lee does have a, um, he does have form for this type of stuff, doesn't he? And I just think that whatever way you come at it, from Lee's point of view, from the from the system's point of view, from the players' point of view, 
you know, you're going to get an answer that people aren't going to be happy with. And I just think that it's very, very sad. And it's something that I know that FIFA and IFAB are meeting again, I think, this week, aren't they? So there might be even more changes with it. Um, But, yeah, a mess, a mess. Very, very confusing. Probably as confusing Mm. as the ramble I've just gone on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lewis Dunk was audibly angry there. Luke Shaw also gave a post-match interview after yesterday's goalless draw between Manchester United and Chelsea. He wasn't so angry with the referee's decision, perhaps more confused, but it was very interesting what he said nonetheless. Let's take a listen. If it's not going to be a pen, I don't think they needed to stop. Um, the ref even said to, to H, I heard him say, if, if, I, if I say it's a pen, then it's going to cause a lot of, a lot of talk about it after. So, you know, I don't know what happened there. H said that they got told it was a pen. He got told it was a pen by VAR, so I'm not sure they what's going on. They asked the ref to go and look at it, and they stay with his decision. Well, that's what I mean. I, I don't understand why he stopped. If he's going to stop, I think maybe you would think he's going to give a pen because we had the ball, we, we was attacking. Um, so it's confusing with this VAR because but if it's not going to be a pen, and, 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 and they might as well just carry on the game. They might as well not stop the, the flow of the game. That was Luke Shaw speaking to Sky Sports after the 0-0 draw with Chelsea yesterday. We've already alluded to the penalty decision that wasn't given by the referee. A handball by Callum Hudson-Odoi. It was decided that it wasn't a penalty kick. Uh, Luke Shaw, whether he meant it to come out of his mouth like that or not yesterday, Jim, he's effectively suggested there that the referee deliberately has made the wrong decision when he was alluding to the fact the referee spoke to Harry Maguire about the decision that was made or not made in the end in Manchester United's favour. Um, it looks like he's now possibly going to be fined or even banned for a few games for practically accusing an official of cheating, making the wrong decision on purpose. I don't think that was Luke Shaw's intention by any means, but certainly it feels that that could be the outcome of this. And if that was the scenario that happened on the pitch, it's 100% right that he should flag it. I mean, there's been a fair bit of backtracking in the last hour or so by Manchester United and the player who have suggested that Luke Shaw didn't quite know what he was saying or misheard what had happened on the pitch. So whether that's genuine backtracking to try and get him out of any potential fine or ban yeah. or whatever it is, or whether it is... Is that a- just because United know they can't win that battle? They're not They're not going to beat the FA at this game that's going on at the moment. I think it's... I just can't... Maybe, maybe because they're not the... going to release the audio, yeah. are they? For instance, no, no. the referees, everything they say is recorded. They're not going. They're not going to release that. They've never done that before. They're not going to start doing it now. No, I mean the, it's easier the for the referees are... to to save face than it is for Manchester United. The P the P G M L or whatever they're called, the guys yeah. that look after the referees, are never going to admit that their manager has said that or that their their referee has said that. Sorry, because that would open a huge can of worms. And I mm. hope that conversation hasn't gone on because that. Uh, calls into question the whole <laughs> integrity of the game and the whole integrity of refereeing as on the whole that referees are kind of second guessing the decisions they should make because it might cause controversy afterwards sure, surely it would cause more controversy not to give the penalty than it would to not give the penalty with the amount of scrutiny there is with VAR and whatnot so I, it's difficult to know what the scenario is I like to think that yeah, Luke Shaw's misheard that and misunderstood the conversation that took place. I think that is the most legitimate explanation and the one that, for the good of the game, we're best off believing. I think it's a fair point because it's an issue that's seemingly more and more difficult to solve as the weeks go on. For me, it seems to be a bit of a three-way dance, Steve, between the players and the managers, the referees 
and the broadcasters. You kind of hinted upon it there with the post-match interviews. The broadcasters kind of, they, they want a bit of the drama, don't they? They want those yeah. lines of questioning to be intense and bring out interesting information out of the subject of those interviews, whether that be players or managers. Um, but yet at the same time, they're the ones that are kind of um, in sort of in control of VAR. We, we're, that's what we see. It's mm. broadcasted to us, that the VAR footage and stuff like that. So it feels that there needs to be some sort of agreement reached between every single party who is involved in this, because I don't think the broadcasters are innocent here, um, uh, uh, to try and solve this issue. Because as you say, it's muddy, it's messy right now, um, and it's only going to continue between now and the end of the season and possibly even into next season unless something's nipped in the bud pretty soon. Yeah, it needs dramatic reform first and foremost. You know, we've got a We've got, a, we, it, I mean, it's multifold, this problem. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned the, the factors before, but all, another factor I didn't mention before is the people actually using the technology as well. So the broadcasters have so much power in all this. And I just think that, you know, they can be of assistance with this because of the technology that they've got. And I think, just to reiterate what I said before, I just think that, the, the you know, some of the journalists interviewing the likes of Mike Riley or, Lee Mason or the idea of them coming out because they'll rip to shreds by a trained journalist. Well, they need media training, wouldn't they, Steve? So they'd have to be trained. In that. The thing I think that, that, that putting the refs in front of the camera would have is, is it adds that human element to them as people. And we saw this with England before the, um, the, before the World Cup when, I mean, England players have had it ripped out of them for decades. They have been the target of negative headlines from the press. Before the last World Cup, it changed a little bit because they were presented as human beings by the FA and Gareth Southgate organised that great big kind of roundtable NFL style press event and people kind of talked about their history and their families and, the, and their lives and all that kind of thing and it kind of it, it presented those individuals as humans and I, I do think that would happen with referees. If they were put in front of the cameras, if they were allowed to give their opinions and show themselves as people rather than just the in the black then it would kind of it, it would give us more more intel on their decision making but also it presents them as humans and i think if someone's presented as a human it becomes much more difficult to then send them death threats on twitter for example yeah. i just think that's the positive impact it could have i mean i think that i mean you, you mentioned social media then because I, I was going to say that as well about social media but I just think that, that what you've just described would be the utopia, um, you know, where, where the, all the kind of negativity stops and people come out and think, actually, you know what, Stuart Atwell or is a kind of, you know, stand-up guy. He's a, he's a nice fella and he's just got that one wrong today or he's had a great job because um, what we don't do enough of is praise referees when they have really good mm. games. Um, no, no one comes out and says, I tell you what, wasn't Lee Mason outstanding tonight? He didn't put a foot wrong. He was on top of all the action. He controlled the plays. He didn't get let anything get out of hand. It was a very well-disciplined and run game. We don't, we don't talk about that. I think that, yeah, it'd be nice if, if we did get to a place where they could uh, do that. But I think, just to go back to my point, I just don't, I think the pain of trying to get to that that place will would be quite significant. I mean, we, mm. we've. I mean, how many seasons have we had VAR in now? And, and we're still in this. I mean, the incident in the Chelsea United game is today. You know, we're still miles away from sorting that out. And I think to drag the referees along that journey 
first of all, I think we've got to commit to it and we've got to say, right, yes, we are going to do this. Don't put a date on it. So don't come out and say, by the way, guys, in nine months' time, all the referees are going to start talking to you. Start the work behind the scenes. You know, get them, like Jim mentioned, the media training on there. Give them examples of of questions that they're likely to get to, that will trip them up in front of on national TV, um, and certain pitfalls to avoid, and then maybe just kind of saying, you know, twelve eighteen months or whatever. Um, mm. Oh, we've managed to have a word with Andre Mariner. Uh, Andre just gives you thoughts on him and just bring it in like that don't make a massive song and dance about that it's coming up but I think unless we commit to doing the really hard work on that and it will be really hard work because there's going to be some painful things that would happen off the back of that mm. I think it's it, you know it's a non-starter until we get that commitment I think you're right you are inevitably going to get questions to referees to try and trip them up um, and I don't think referees would appreciate being put in that position and even if they're promised that it won't happen it's inevitable that it will happen at some point down on the line uh, fascinating to discuss that and the situation with referees at the moment but we've still got Premier League action to discuss because there is a game this evening Everton against Southampton we'll talk about it next here on Football Social Daily Football Social Daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk to hear the latest Premier League news for your team just ask Open Sport Social Welcome back to Football Social Daily, the daily Premier League podcast from Sports Social. And Sports Social has a brand new podcast network, the UK's only dedicated sports podcast network. Loads of different football shows, loads of shows from a range of different sports. And if you're a podcast creator, you can get involved as well. Why not head over to our website, sport-social.co.uk, for a little bit more information. Zero hosting fees and a chance for you to grow your own sports podcast with us here at Sports Social. So looking forward to hearing from you. Time to talk about everything. Everton against Southampton now. But before we do, Steve, I wanted to ask you a little bit of a question uh, from Liverpool's game last night. What was special about Roberto Firmino's goal for Liverpool to make it 2-0 against Sheffield United last night? Uh, I have no idea. It was the Reds' 7,000th oh, yes, top-flight yeah. goal. And Firmino's first. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes Liverpool the second-highest top-flight scorers ever with 7,000. Any ideas who might be top of that list, Jim? Manchester United is the team that instantly springs to mind. It feels too obvious, but I'll go Manchester United. It's not. It's Everton with 7,108 goals in the top flight. And it's Everton where we're going now as they take on Southampton this evening at 8pm. Their opponents, Southampton, the injuries, Jim, that Southampton have got, absolutely terrible right now. So is their form. Shocking. (laughs) However... Everton haven't been great against some of the struggling sides lately. I think back to a couple of weekends ago where they lost to Newcastle. Then they were soundly beaten by Fulham. These are the sorts of games where Everton haven't done themselves justice. I can hear Steve laughing in the background because <laughs> I'm sure because of the, the double standards of classing Southampton as a team with an injury crisis while we dismiss Liverpool's. But I think potentially <laughs> Southampton have got more cause for upset because they don't have the same squad depth it is looking slightly better for Southampton I don't know who they've actually got missing at the moment but I know they've got Walker Peters he's been back for a couple of weeks now Danny Ings who's such a talismanic striker for them is back as well so he's fully fit so should play so the problems are easing at Southampton but it becomes very difficult to turn that form around when that rot sets in as we've described earlier it can be quite challenging to fill your team with enough confidence to be able to turn it round. They just need that spark. They need that one victory to set them on the way again. It doesn't feel like it's going to happen tonight 
in all honesty. I think Everton are going to have a point to prove after some pretty middling performances recently, as you described, Niall. They're going to come out fighting tonight. And you just fan... I mean, I've been disappointed with Everton this year. I think they've looked in spits and spots like a really competent team and a team that's capable of getting into those Champions League spots, but they don't do it on a consistent enough basis. So... I think it's probably one of those games where Ancelotti is going to be tearing into his team before the match and going to say to him, get out there, prove a point, earn your wages, show him what you've got tonight. I think it's a really good point. The consistency of Everton is something which has certainly been one of their pitfalls this season. And I think a fair amount of Evertonians would agree with you with that, Jim. They do have a couple of games in hand, though, Steve. They can solidify their European challenge if they pick up wins in those games. There's also rumours circulating that Everton almost have to get European football this season to kind of tilt the books back in their favour. Obviously, revenue has been massively down for all Premier League clubs this season due to the absence of fans in stadiums. Now, we all know how well Everton are backed financially from the top, but with investment, naturally, after a while, you're going to need a return. The way that they see that is by qualifying for European football. They're in with a great chance of doing so now. I certainly think they're a European club. I wonder what your take is. Yeah, I think they are. I think, well, I think they could start to be. Um, I mean, they've, they've not had European competition for, for a long time. I think they'll get in the Europa League this season. I think they'll finish in them places um, that will see them return to that. And hopefully, you know, they, they'll avoid the early rounds where they've got to travel in July, you know, to play two-legged games and stuff like that. But I think that, I think you know, when, you, when you've got a manager like Carlo Ancelotti and they've spent the money that they've spent, Everton have spent a... Astronomical amount of money uh, in the last certainly four or five years. Um, I mean, it, it might be over half a billion quid or something like that they've spent. I mean, I'm sure I'll, I'll get corrected on Twitter or whatnot. Um, but uh, yeah, it, 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 when you spend that level of cash, you know, you've got to start to see a return for it. And I think they've had a strange transfer policy where I think they've gone out and just got people people in for the sake of it. But Carlo Ancelotti is getting a tune out of that team. There's no doubt about it. And I think, you know, they have been uh, fairly decent this season. Um, they've, got, they've got a big week coming up. They've got uh, they've got Southampton tonight, we've, we've mentioned. I think they've got West Brom away next as well um, in, in one of their games, which which won't be easy because Sam Allardyce has slightly improved West, West Brom. Um, and I think they've then got Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. So, you know, it's it's um, it's a tricky week they've got coming up, you know, three games in the next seven days. But it is an opportunity to, you know, certainly jump above Liverpool in, into sixth um, and, and you know, try and hold on to that position for Europa League football. It is a sleeping giant of a football t- football club. There's no doubt about it. When I take the rivalry aside, um, obviously exciting news last week that they've, they've been given the go-ahead for the new stadium, you know, at Bramley Moor Dock, which is something they've needed for a long time. I know you've got, you're quite fond of Goodison Park, um, you know, as, as an old kind of fashion football ground, but Everton outgrew Goodison Park a long time ago. So, you know, the fact that they're getting this new ground, which will mean more revenue for them, there'll be a more attractive commercial proposition off the back of it. And they've got a world-class manager in Ancelotti who's won everything in the game now. So, I, you know, Everton are on the cusp here. You know, let, let's not deny this. You know, they are, um, they've made massive strides in the last 12 months. Um, since Carlo Ancelotti's come in and I, I think they'll, they'll be in the Europa League places and I think it's a competition I don't see them winning but I think they can get to the knockout stages in it. I think that they'll be bitterly disappointed Jim if they don't qualify for the Europa League considering how well they've done this year. Yeah I mean that would have been Ancelotti's 
bullet point number one on the here's the things you need to achieve list handed to him by the board, get European competition. And I think Ancelotti's slightly unlucky in that respect, that he is a victim of the failures that have come before, that Everton have been reaching for so long for this status of regular top four contender. And as Steve says, they've spent a lot of money on poor signings that won't have been anything to do with Ancelotti, came way before his time. So suddenly your investors are now looking for this return, which isn't necessarily the failure to hit that previously is nothing to do with the current manager. So he, I feel slightly sorry for him that maybe the pressure is on quicker than it should have been otherwise, because he has made these inroads into making Everton perform much better. But at the same time, that's kind of irrelevant to the people who are ploughing the money in because they've been ploughing the money in for X amount of years. I, I can't remember when they took over, but it's been, what, five, six years, something like that. So suddenly so suddenly, they want some kind of return. They want to see that sooner rather than later, and rightly so. But yeah, they've got all the hallmarks of being able to do that and the new stadium and the financial backing is all there. What they need to do is rebalance their squad a little bit. They need to invest in the summer, which is going to be the difficult thing to convince the board to do because there has been so much investment. They, they need to basically continue that investment and they're only going to be able to do that if they can get rid of some of the deadwood. So it's really interesting, but really important 18 months in Everton's history as a f- football club because it's kind of stick or twist. It's like, do you really want to establish yourself as this force in football? Because mm. if so, there's no point in stopping now. You need to carry on. Yeah, especially with the new stadium in the offing. We saw what happened with West Ham and it's taken quite a while for <laughs> things to get back up to speed there, hasn't it, in East London? Talking of pressure on managers, what about Ralph Hasenhurtl, Steve? The next two games for Southampton after this one with Everton, Sheffield United and Manchester City. And let's face it, they aren't getting anything out of the Manchester City game. And if they lose to Sheffield United, 11 points, bottom of the table, what happens then to Ralph Hasenhurtl? Because... They've been bullish enough to stick with him after two 9-0 defeats in the Premier League in consecutive seasons. I mean, the pressure's not getting any less, is it? It's increasing, if anything, the longer they go without a win. It's now nine games in the Premier League. Yeah, it's not ideal. And we've been quite complimentary about Ralph Hasenhutl in the past. I know you've not, but, um, you know, in the past on on the podcast, we've, you know, we've, we've almost kind of given him a lot of credit for some of the work that he's done at Southampton and Southampton as a club for sticking by him. But, you know, there's... The problem is getting it's getting quite serious now because you know when you're looking at the league table, you know the the you know the seven points ahead of Fulham, um, that gap has been closed many times. You know when when people have been fighting relegation and stuff like that. I don't think they will be relegated, but I think they could be sucked in. Um, I'm pretty convinced the bottom two and and Newcastle may go down, but I think the thing is for Southampton is if you sack Hasenhutl, who else do you go for? You know who else is gonna come into that club, and 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 propel it up the league like they want without without serious investment. We've talked about money in football and people spending large amounts of money on transfers, and you know Southampton, are someone that I mean they they don't spend massive money. You don't see Southampton spending forty million quid on a player. I might be wrong, but I, I can't remember anything like that. Um, they're very much a feeder for other clubs. I mean, certainly my club in the past have, have raided Southampton on a numerous a number of occasions. But I just think that 
give him some investment, give him a proper budget to work with. Um, you're not going to get anyone better because I can't think of anyone to the top of my head who'd go in. I can think of a few big names, but they wouldn't take the Southampton job. You know, there's no doubt about it. You know, Rafa Benitez isn't going to go to Southampton. Um, you know, you know, Allegri's not going to go to Southampton. You know, people like that. So who is it? You know, would Eddie Howe go to Southampton? You know what I mean? It, it becomes quite difficult, I think. So I think, you know, yes, it's a bad season. Yes, they're in, a, in, in poor form. Have another look at it in summer. Give until Christmas to try and sort it out. Yeah, I don't think they're going to go down, Jim, are they? 30 points now. Still a reasonable gap to the relegation zone. The form is massively concerning, but there are still a couple of sides below them that might be more concerned than they are. Yeah, I think Steve's right. The teams that are down there, Sheffield United are gone. West Brom are probably gone as well. Fulham are the team that might get out of that. And if they do, you'd fancy that place probably to be filled by Newcastle. So I think Southampton are safe. And I think a lot of teams this season, where they previously might have pulled the trigger, where they previously might have got rid of a manager, will just be exercising a little bit of caution. Partly because of the finances involved in getting rid of a manager aren't insignificant and finances are tight across football but it's been such an unusual season and the, the injuries have played a part and the tight scheduling has played a part and the lack of fans has played a part so I think there's going to be a fair few chairmen that are just kind of thinking mm. well let's give it 10 games into next season let's see how we come out of the traps <laughs> next season and see how it goes just wonder what the chairman will be saying right I've given you two nine nils now no more <laughs> You've had your two strikes, no more. <laughs> Everton against Southampton, 8pm kickoff this evening in the Premier League. And with that, we reach the end of Monday's Football Social Daily. But fear not, we'll be back again tomorrow and every single day for the rest of the season with a brand new episode. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you all. Thank you, Steve. No problem, mate. I'm Niall. This is Football Social Daily. Hit subscribe and we'll catch you again soon. Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Instagram at Sports Social Official. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.